Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The volume. NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back. And DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers can score $200 instantly in bonus bets for throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You'll start the season with an instant dub. And with DraftKings parlays, everyone's got a shot at an even bigger basketball win. String together multiple bets from the same game or build your parlay across multiple games for a shot at making your payday even sweeter. Basketball's more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. Licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles in Louisiana. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Saturday, everybody. Hope all of you guys are having a great weekend so far. Got a jam-packed show for you today. We're going to be hitting on five games. I didn't get to watch any basketball last night because I was watching the Arizona Diamondbacks in the World Series lose in absolutely heartbreaking fashion uh, thanks to a Corey Seager two-run bomb 
off of our closer who has never given up a run so far in postseason uh, in the postseason this year until that specific hit. So that was depressing. But I woke up this morning and I watched about six consecutive hours of basketball from a jam-packed night of hoops. And we're going to hit on five games. Golden State Warriors have an impressive double-digit win against the Sacramento Kings. The Spurs and the Rockets, a game that we would never have covered last year on the show, produced an incredibly entertaining game. Victor Wembanyama sends the game to OT with a late bucket. The Spurs end up closing the deal in OT. Uh, the Miami Heat and Boston Celtics always play tough games. The Heat, uh, through, throughout most of the game, kind of made Boston feel uncomfortable and, and kept a little bit of a lead, but Boston's talent takes over in the fourth quarter as they come out with a win. The Oklahoma City Thunder came back from down 10 with a couple of minutes left against the Cleveland Cavaliers. They hit four consecutive threes. We're going to hit that game from both teams. And then Luka Doncic hits four consecutive threes to steal a game from the Brooklyn Nets as they have gone 0-2. Uh, blowing too late leads. So we're going to hit all five of those games from the perspectives of all 10 teams. Then I have three mailbag questions for the end of the show as well. You guys know the drill before we get started? This is our new YouTube channel. It would mean a lot to me if you guys would take a second to scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Help us get this channel off the ground. Don't forget about our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops Tonight. Follow me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. That's where I'm doing video content and show announcements. This morning I posted a bunch of videos from my film session on Twitter. So I'm going to reference a bunch of plays that you'll be able to see on my Twitter feed. And then last but not least, I need more mailbag questions. Keep dropping those in the YouTube comments so we can hit them later on during the season. So Golden State Sacramento, a classic kind of game where at the beginning, it's the star that's kind of carrying things while the team figures things out. The Kings kind of have a little bit of a lead. They're holding the, the Warriors at bay. But Steph's going crazy. He goes crazy in the first half. Goes crazy again to start the third quarter. Goes on a crazy run to put the, the Warriors up 11 in the middle of the third quarter. Hits a step back three. Hits a mid-range pull-up and a pick and roll. Hits a driving layup off, over, against a double team against Harrison Barnes where he beats him to the, to the baseline and lays it up and just starts talking shit. Then caps it off with a movement three at the top of the key where he gets fouled. Uh, gets a, a four-point play, puts the Warriors up 11. But what I thought was interesting, because Steph was amazing, finished with 41 points, he's amazing. I, I can sit here and talk about how amazing Steph is all night long. But what I found, found to be super interesting in this game was the run that the bench went on in the late third quarter. Uh, they went with an interesting kind of front court combination of Trace Jackson Davis with Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga alongside Clay Thompson and Chris Paul, and they were really good defensively. During that third quarter run, the three, uh, those three, Trace Jackson, Davis, Moses Moody, and Jonathan Kaminga were on the floor for four minutes, and they were plus seven, and logged a defensive rating of sixty three point six, which is outstanding. And what stood out to me most, mostly, was the overall amount of athleticism on the floor with that group. Trace Jackson Davis is basically like a really big wing if you factor in his mobility. Obviously, he functions offensively as a big man, but like he's got the mobility and lateral quickness that you see in a lot of wings, and he's got the versatility to kind of function as a wing when it comes to covering ground in rotation, which is something that the Warriors have never really had from the center position outside of Draymond in, the, in this era. It's almost always been bigger, slower players that are occupying those minutes, right? And there was a specific play that I thought demonstrated this really well that you guys can see um, on my Twitter feed if you go back where I talk about this particular trio. But Tracy Jackson Davis gets a block in drop coverage at the rim on the left side of the rim. As a result, which by the way, already impressive defensive play. But in the scrum, the ball ends up flying to the top of the key and uh, to a wide open shooter. And I think it was De'Aaron Fox, if I remember correctly. And both uh, Moses Moody and uh, and uh, Jonathan Kaminga close out to the top of the key. When they both close out to the top of the key, the ball gets swung to the corner. 
when the swing goes to the corner, Trace Jackson Davis rotates from under the basket where he was in drop coverage to chase, I think it was Keegan Murray, out of the right corner, chase him off the line. Moses Moody realizes that him and Kaminga are on the same guy. He sprints back and guards JaVale McGee. Uh, Keegan Murray drives towards the left, towards the middle, and throws a kickout pass back to the top of the key. Jonathan Kaminga, who's a freak athlete, digs down to contain that drive from the uh, from the left side, right? And then recovers out to the top of the key to contest a three-point shot and force a miss. So again, uh, like like the the you get the high-level rim protection from Trace Jackson Davis on that play, but in the chaos, you leave two open shooters. But because you've got athletes on the floor, they're flying out to those shooters and they're chasing them off the line and forcing them into tougher shots. And that that kind of like athleticism uh, out of the front court again like athleticism on the perimeter has its own value but when especially when you have bigger athletes they can help you a lot when it comes to contesting shots and flying around in rotation and that's kind of an aspect that we haven't been used to seeing from Golden State in their bench groups and I thought that was a really exciting kind of stretch of basketball to demonstrate what they could be getting out of the bench over the course of the season um, again, plus seven in four minutes for that trio, 63.6 defensive rating. Hard not to get excited about that. Another solid Jonathan Kaminga game. He was plus nine in 26 minutes, uh, had a nasty tip dunk, made some defensive plays. Uh, I, he had a, a play where he beat Davion Mitchell on a post-up. That's that matchup, ta- matchup attacking stuff that I like to see. Hit a very important corner three before the half that kind of changed the tone of the game. Jonathan Kaminga's a lot better than I thought he was going to be this season so far. And again, especially through 82 games or reps, it's very possible that he could be that playoff forward that Golden State's been looking for. Uh, I really liked Chris Paul with that group too. And, and, and this is that concept where like having an adult to run the show in a lineup that has young players works. It, it, like Because again, when you threw Jordan Poole in with those groups, it's almost one of those things where like the total aggregate call it basketball IQ, call it like ability to slow down and execute. That, whatever you want to refer to that trait is, with those groups, kind of dipped below a level where it became freakishly inconsistent. And you would have stretches where Poole's making shots, Kaminga's making plays, and they would look great. But then you'd have stretches where it would just absolutely crater when all of them are making bad decisions. And what's nice about having Chris Paul out there is he's kind of the adult to run the show with the kids. And again, like, I know they're not kids, they're grown-ass men, but I mean, within the concept of basketball, to have that super experienced, methodical player out there to kind of get all those guys in the right spots goes a long way to helping those lineups be consistent. And again, when you juxtapose that with the Jordan Poole experience, that's what you're hoping for. You're not trying to win games with the bench. You're trying to keep your starters and where they are at in the game, try to maintain that progress so that when they come back in the game, they can build upon it though. And like there were times when the, uh, when the Warriors won games with their bench and that's great, but the consistent experience is actually better here. Chris Paul is really good at just finding the easy shots that exist on um, on the basketball court. So, like there was a there was a sequence um, there was a sequence in the uh, early fourth quarter where he ran pick and roll with Dario Saric, and on the first one he just like gets downhill into Sabonis's chest, like caves his chest in with a hard power dribble and makes a layup uh, while the defenders come in from behind in back pressure. And it was kind of interesting because you could tell like Chris Paul really hit the Jets on that play, and it felt like he was almost trying to send a message like I am willing to score here. 
if you guys just let me go downhill unimpeded, right? And then on the very next possession, they run another pick and roll. But in this case, Chris more methodically is trying to set up Dario Sarge for a shot. So when he comes down over the top of the screen, they both converge on Chris because he had just scored by dropping his shoulder and getting downhill. Nice, easy bounce pass to Dario Sarge in the short corner for a little 17-foot jump shot that he's going to make probably two out of three times when he's that wide open. That's just easy, easy basketball. And again, like there are... We talk about this all the time, but like offensive ratings, if you look at them for the league, you know, the best teams in the league are around 120 and the worst teams in the league are around 110. It's really not that much of a difference. There's less than a 10% difference between the best teams in the league and the worst teams in the league, right? And so what's actually happening there is like it's the little things on the margins that are the difference. There are easy shots that exist in games. The teams that find those easy opportunities more frequently have higher offensive ratings. There are difficult shots that take place in the game. These are rescue possessions, late game situations. The teams that are good at converting those usually have higher offensive ratings, right? Chris Paul is not the guy that's going to make a ton of really, really tough shots and and lift you up in, in terms of the super high-level shot making. But that's not what you need. That's what you have Steph Curry for. What you need is the guy that can execute and find the easy shots that are available to be had in basketball games. Like You're not going to be able to run a Dario Sarge pick-and-roll with Chris Paul at the end of a game and get a wide-open 17-footer. They're, they're, gonna either, they're probably going to switch the action and force Chris to make some tough shot. But in the air, at beginning of the fourth quarter, when the game is more fast and loose... Like there, those those are there to be had, and, and Chris is the guy that's going to make sure you get those, and you're seeing that manifest in the scoreboard. So so far through two games, when Steph is on the floor, the Warriors are plus two point three net, so outscoring their opponents by two point three points per one hundred possessions in one hundred forty two possessions, according to Cleaning the Glass. Now that number's lower because they lost the Suns game, right? But like you expect to be positive over the course of the season, probably around seven or eight points per one hundred possessions when Steph's on the floor. That's great, right? That's you. That's what you can depend on thanks to Steph being one of the top five players in the world, right? But when Chris Paul is on the floor so far this year and Steph is off, the Warriors are plus 3.1 net in 62 possessions. So outscoring opponents by 3.1 points per 100 possessions. And again, that's a small sample size, but so far you are winning the minutes when Steph is on the floor, off the floor. That's important. Again, again, like when you want to have your best chance to beat the best teams in the league, you can't hemorrhage points with the bench group. Chris is giving you a better job of surviving those particular minutes. And again, like in the, it's not just without Steph on the floor there either. Because like I would argue, Draymond Green is either the second or third best player on the Warriors. Probably the second best player with how poorly Andrew Wiggins has been playing to start the year, right? And so, and really for the most of last year as well. So like. Like you're really without your second and or your your best player and your uh, second best player in this case, right? And so what, what's interesting about that is like the Warriors love to tie Draymond Green to Steph Curry, and the main reason why that's a good idea is because Steph and pick and roll actions brings the offensive firepower to the action. It actually makes more sense to run Chris with more offensively skilled. Uh, big men because he's not going to be as active as a scorer in pick and roll. This is a concept we've talked about over the course of preseason. and But one of the problems is, is over the last couple of years, often Steve Kerr has had to play Draymond Green with some of the groups without Steph because they've struggled so much. That was a big part of the, the story last year, if you guys remember. And it's because they're just grasping at straws. Like, how do we win these minutes? We're, getting, we're losing these minutes. We got to get Draymond in with those guys so maybe we can get stops and maybe that'll carry us over the top. But if you can actually go the way they want to go, which is keep Draymond tied to Steph so that you have that, that, that offensive potential of those two and Draymond's defensive ceiling, right? But then also be able to float your minutes 
when Chris is out there with uh, Dario Saric and Jonathan Kaminga or whoever it is, Trace Jackson Davis as well, if they can float those minutes without Draymond and without Steph, that's where you get that classic Golden State mixture that they're shooting for. Um, So far through two games, the Warriors have a 108 defensive rating. That's pretty solid, especially when you consider they're against the Kings and the Suns in those two games. That's not an easy task. 95 defensive rating in the half court. That's solid as well. well. Biggest areas of opportunity. They got out-rebounded in both games, although I did think the guards competed better against Sacramento. The guards are who got killed in the Suns game, but I thought they competed better against Sacramento. And they need to find a way to get Andrew Wiggins going. There's something going on with him. He's just in a little bit of a funk. I don't know if he's just not in shape. I don't know if he's just struggling to fit in with the uh, uh, with all of the other young guys being more aggressive. But when they were at their best, Andrew Wiggins was their second best player when they won the title in 2022. So that's something that I'd like to see them figure out. Uh, on the Kings front, De'Aaron Fox at 39. He's locked in so far this year. He's 7 for 15 on pull-up jump shots, and four of them are pull-up threes. So he's got a 60% effective field goal percentage on pull-ups. That's incredible. That that was basically what Steph led the league with last year. So good start there on that on that front. Three for four in floaters as well. The one weird thing with De'Aaron Fox is he's still missing at the rim. And if you remember, this was the story last year. Last year, De'Aaron Fox was like incredible at the rim. If I remember correctly, he shot over 70% at the rim. But then in the Warriors series, he really struggled to finish at the rim. And so far this year, he's only 8 for 16. So I don't know what's going on there. I don't know if it's a decision-making thing, a spacing thing. But De'Aaron Fox is missing too many layups. Um, and they're getting nothing out of Kevin Herter right now. He's over, He was 0 for 5 on threes last night. He's 1 for 12 on jump shots so far this season. He's only attempted two shots at the rim. Main thing that I'm seeing on tape there is he's just taking extremely difficult shots. Like he basically comes off these dribble handoffs and either gets rid of the ball or shoots. And when he's looking for shot attempts, he's giving that one-two footwork, right? Like if he's coming to to his right, he's planting that left foot, planting that right foot, and he's twisting in midair to square up and, and get that shot off. And it's just a really, really difficult shot. And so one of the things I'd like to see from Kevin Herter, and he can actually take this as a play a page from Clay Thompson's playbook, but use relocation dribbles. Be more willing to use that crazy uh, uh, lock and trail defender's momentum against him to find higher quality shots because that's 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 again when you're in when you're out of rhythm if you try to shoot yourself out of rhythm by taking more tough shots you're just going to get more and more discouraged but if you actually try to get out of your uh you know shooting slump by hunting down easier shots to build your confidence that can go a long way to getting him out of it so i again i just would like to see him put the ball on the floor a little bit more uh, to try to generate higher quality shots malik monk malik monk is also struggling to start the year uh, and that's hurting them with Fox off the floor. So far, they are minus five net in 51 possessions without De'Aaron Fox. So they're getting they're getting outscored by five points per 100 possessions. As a team, still not playing any defense. 113 defensive rating, and teams are shooting 78 percent against the Kings in the restricted area so far through two games. That is the second worst mark in the entire NBA. All right, moving on to Houston, San Antonio. This game was an absurd amount of fun. The Rockets were up by 10 in the late third quarter. Doug McDermott, go, Doug, Doug, man, I'm having a hard time speaking today. Doug McDermott goes on a, a run to end the third quarter and start the fourth quarter. Uh, has a, a Hits three threes, I think, in total between the end of the third and the middle of the fourth. Gets it back close, and then down stretch was a down the stretch was a fun chess match. Van Vliet had a nice stretch attacking the rim and finishing in traffic. Devin Vassell hit a couple of big shots. He had this like spinning turnaround jump shot against Dylan Brooks, and then like wagged the finger at him and started talking shit. Uh, again, Devin Vassell, I talked about him after the first game, but he kind of reminds me a little bit of young Devin Booker in his approach as a scorer, but he's actually a little bit 
taller and, and, and has longer arms. And so he's actually got the potential to be even more difficult to guard with his release point. Um, but he, it's a, he, he made a lot of big plays down the stretch of this game. Had a big alley-oop and OT as well. But then it basically settled into the to, into the Rockets running cleared side post-ups for Alperin Shangun. So the uh, um, uh, uh, Zach Collins had five fouls. And so Ime Udoka really wanted them to run through Alperin Shangun on the, on the left block. So they basically just kind of set up in like a four-out spacing. So they had like a, a guy in the right corner, guy on the right wing, and then two guys basically at the lane lines extended to the top of the key. And then they just cleared the entire left side and let Shangun basically just kind of back his way in and look for hook shots over Zach Collins. And knowing that he's not going to be able to play super physical defense to push Shangun off of his spots, because if he does, he's going to foul out. And it worked really well. They were getting hooks. They were uh, drawing doubles and kicking out and, and get it, playing drive and kick basketball from there. It, it was working for the Rockets. That was their late game offense. Down the stretch for the Spurs, it was pretty ugly again. Again, their perimeter players right now are still a little inconsistent, but they started to have success when they started feeding uh, Victor Wembanyama on the right block and post-ups against Jabari Smith. He had one in the uh, like kind of middle third quarter where he spun baseline and dunked it on the right side of the basket. I, I put that one on, on Twitter. You guys can see that there. And then in the uh, final minute when the Spurs were down by two, I think it was right around 30 seconds left, same thing, posts up. Uh, uh, Jabari Smith on the right block and kind of makes that same sort of hard baseline move. This time Jabari cuts him off, but he just bumps him off with that shoulder and hits a little right-handed hook shot, a, a shot that's like literally impossible to guard. And that ended up sending the game to overtime. Now, in overtime, the Spurs kind of solved the Shangun post-up. Uh, 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 Zach Collins said, screw it, just started being more physical and forced him into some misses. And then the the one of the things that the Rockets were doing that I disagreed with is they basically had those four guys that were spacing just stand in those four spots. And there was no kind of motion or interchanging taking place. And so the Spurs defenders that were kind of gapping those guys, they were able to split the difference. And they had seen that same action so many times, they figured out how to guard it. They forced a couple of turnovers overs on Shangun. He uh, forced an offensive foul, then they got a steal on a kickout pass, and they were running it down the other end for layups and dunks. Uh, uh, Keldon Johnson had a, a big two-handed dunk down the stretch. So the Spurs go up big. The Rockets then default back to uh, uh, that Van Vliet Shangun pick and roll, and they score seven quick points on it. Two pocket passes to uh, Shangun, one of where he just threw down this ridiculous dunk over Zach Collins. Like I said, super, super fun game because Shangun dunks on, on Zach Collins and talks all sorts of shit. Then they go down to the other end and they run Zach Collins in the post against Shangun. And he hits this like hard dribble to the right, spin back baseline and gets past him for an and one. At that point, though, the uh, really by the time the, uh, the Keldon Johnson had that dunk, they were up big in, the, in OT and it was basically over at that point. But the Rockets did make some shots late to make it kind of interesting. Uh, Victor Wembanyama finished with 21 points and 12 rebounds, two steals and three blocks. Made a ton of huge defensive plays. There was this, so I told you guys about the play where Devin Vassell hits the turnaround jump shot over Dylan Brooks and starts talking shit. Well, on the very next possession, they end up, uh, he ends up attacking him again. And Dylan Brooks, of course, takes it personally because this young kid's talking shit to him. So he's locking him up, uh, sliding with him. Vassell ends up taking like a tough, like 17 foot fadeaway on the baseline and airballs it because Dylan Brooks is especially good at disrupting your base. I've talked about this before, but like when you're giving up size to a guy who could shoot over the top, push him on their base to disrupt their lift and then attack the shooting pocket to disrupt their gather. And that's going to operate 
uh, that's going to be much more effective to disrupt them than trying to actually contest the shot when the guy's taller than you, right? So he forces the turnover, or not the turnover, the air ball, and the Rockets run out the other way. Jabari Smith rises up and tries to dunk on Victor Wembanyama. Victor Wembanyama meets him on the top and and blocks it. In the process, he gets hit. Victor kind of falls back towards the baseline. Jabari Smith gets his own offensive rebound, thinks there's nobody around him, tries to lay it back up. Victor somehow recovers from the baseline to get back into the play and blocks Jabari Smith again. Some of the most ridiculous defensive plays that we've ever seen are happening on a nightly basis with this Victor Wembanyama kid. It, it's ridiculous. The um, He was also their most reliable offensive option uh, down the stretch. Talked about those two right block post-ups. They had another play where they drew up an ISO for him against Dylan Brooks on a baseline out of bounds, and he ended up faking a back cut and then popping back out to the perimeter, knocking down a jump shot. Thought it was interesting, too, because after the game-tying shot against Jabari Smith Jr., you could see Dylan Brooks get a little frustrated. And in my head, I'm like, I bet you Dylan Brooks asks for the matchup in OT. And he got it. He got the matchup against Victor, and then Victor scored on him just by making a back cut move and then and then shooting over the top of him. But again, like for him at this point in his career to be that confident at the in a late game situation, down by two to go get a bucket, to be as confident as he was in OT, this kid is just insane. This kid is going to be insanely good. Um 18 points and nine rebounds a game so far. He's got 11 post-ups and 11 isos so far this season for 11 points. So he's a point per possession and half court, static half-court shot creation. 4.5 stocks per game, which is absolutely insane. And the Spurs have a plus 7 net rating, meaning they're outscoring teams by 7 points per 100 possessions with him on the floor. Man, uh, talk about a franchise-altering t- talent. Also was confident at the free-throw line down the stretch. Just, just he's, he's, he's way more advanced than I expected to see at this point. I was thinking earlier, I, I don't want to say anything after two games, but like, there's a chance that within a couple of months we're like, oh, this kid's already one of the 20 best players alive. Like that, that's, that's how quickly this, t- this kid is pers- – uh, uh, that's how quickly this kid is progressing and where he's at. Uh, in terms of like his ability to impact winning relative to potential. Remember, with most young guys, it's like you see the numbers, you see the production, you see the highlights, but the winning impact isn't there. And that's the exact opposite of what we're seeing with Victor. Like he's straight up impacting winning at an extremely high level as a rookie in the NBA, which is super uncommon. Devin Vassell, 24 points per game so far and 65% true shooting, 7 for 15 on pull-up jump shots and 6 for 6 at the rim. Pretty damn impressive start of the season for him. Uh, he had some big shots down the stretch of this game. Also had a big alley-oop to Zach Collins in OT. The Spurs are in good shape. They're going to be a fun team to watch this year. For the Rockets, I thought it was really interesting that they went to Shangun for the most part down the stretch. He's averaging 20-11-7 on 58% true shooting so far. He kind of fell apart in OT with some turnovers and, and bad decisions out of the post. But again, like I blame that more on the the, the schematic setup. Like If you ran, run the same exact action without any wrinkles – you know, a dozen times a defense gonna is gonna figure it out. Like you can mimic the action, but add wrinkles to make it so that it's it, like, like even if you look at down the stretch when LeBron was attacking Nurkic and pick and roll in the Suns Lakers game, like it was three pick and rolls and three layups, but all three of them were in different spots on the floor, and all three of them had different kind of slashing angles. Like one from the left wing, run one from the middle, and one from the right wing. Like that that just that just gives a little bit of a difference in the way that the alignment is set up so that maybe it's a different help defender involved. Maybe it's a 
you know, a different angle for the screen or whatever it might be. One of the one of the ones that Le- LeBron hit with AD, AD rescreened on the opposite side to get better separation. Like, do something different when you're spamming in action to, to prevent a, def- a defense from getting too locked in on it, right? Uh, but the Rockets are a lot of fun, and they're better than they were last year. I'm just confused by the process of it all. Like, like Jalen Green was completely uninvolved in the offense in the fourth quarter in overtime. And, like, he was your lottery pick two years ago. So what what's the purpose here? Like I get running it through Shangoon, but like running so much through Van Vliet, you know, like like my question is is if you especially if you're going to lose games, your own two, and and, and the Rockets are fun, but they're not going to make the playoffs or anything. This is not a team that's going to win a ton of basketball games. But so like all you're doing is just finding out that Fred Van Vliet can make you a mediocre basketball team rather than letting Jalen Green get his repetitions that he needs so that you can find out whether or not he can lead you to be a great basketball team. Or, no, he can't. We might have to move him and look and look to go another direction. The only way you're going to find that out is by giving him those opportunities. And it is kind of a bummer to me that two games in, he's basically turned into a spot-up player. And by the way, he had two driving layups down the stretch of this game on uh, on random possessions where he looked to be aggressive. And it's like, this is the type of top-tier athleticism that he has that makes him such an intriguing prospect to begin with. All right, moving on to Heat Celtics. So the Heat jumped him early. Uh, Bam was killing him in the half court. He had a lot of success attacking Kristaps Porzingis. That was the first time that I saw uh, Kristaps look a little... Uh, you know, tissue papery in the on the defensive end, but it, it, it's a it's a tough matchup. Bam is a, a much better athlete than him and is stronger and has a lower center of gravity. So it's basically just hitting him with that right shoulder and creating separation, hitting that little short jumper over the top, or using his strength to get leverage around him to work along the baseline. He was killing him early. Tyler Harrow uh, made a lot of shots in just kind of like the breakdown areas of the game in that first half. He had, he had two d- jumpers in transition. He had another one off of an offensive rebound from Kevin Love. Um, again, like Tyler Harrow is one of those guys, like if he's in a really good drop coverage, a really deep drop coverage where he get, gets good looks in the mid-range, and when he's attacking closeouts, he can be really devastating because of his ability to shoot. He's also really good with those escape dribbles that I was talking about earlier that I want to see Kevin Herter use more. Um, but it's a little bit tougher for him when he gets into a really tough half court situation, static, you know, running pick and roll against an elite defense when they're really loaded up on him. That's where it can get a little tougher for him. Isos as well. Uh, but he can get buckets in the flow of the offense and that's value. There's value there. It just really comes down to, again, with the heat, they get into this fourth quarter situation and you know, the, 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 um, the Celtics are basically throwing the kitchen sink at Jimmy Butler and there just wasn't another guy who could really like at a high level, create shots in the half court against the Celtics when they were really locked in. Um, but he go up 26-13. Tyler and, and Bam are hot early. They did a good job of getting Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown out of, out, of, out of rhythm. They're so good at that. For whatever reason, the Heat just are capable of making Jimmy, or excuse me, making Jason and, and Jalen just not play well. Um, and I, I think there's a little bit of a mental thing going on there. We, we talked about this a lot on this show, but like there are teams where matchups where a specific team is just kind of in the other team's head. I feel like Golden State's a little bit in Sacramento's head, for instance, right? Denver's a little bit in the Lakers' head. And I think the Heat are a little bit in the Celtics' head. But the difference is is they just have an absurd amount of talent. And they rid rid that talent in a big way in that fourth quarter. Derek White was awesome. He had 28 points. He had 14 points in the fourth quarter. Derek White's red hot with his jump shooting so far this season. Seven for 11 on jump shots. Three for five on off-the-dribble jump shots. Blocked Jimmy Butler in transition on dunks twice. One in the first half and then a big one late in the game. It's funny, I, w- I went on with the Jenkins and Jones guys 
um, last week. And that episode just posted this morning. So you can find that on the Jenkins and Jones feed. It's also on our Hoops Tonight feed. If you look at the uh, just this same channel's feed, if you scroll down, the one that looks like a little bit different thumbnail, that was when I went on with the Jenkins and Jones guys. Uh, but we were talking about, we were ranking the first options, second options, third options, and fourth options in the NBA. And we got into a little bit of, of a debate because um, we were trying to decide who is the best fourth option in the league. And it's definitely on the Celtics. The question is, is whether or not it's Derek White or Kristaps Porzingis. And so I on the show was like, I think it's Derek White. And the main reason why is just I just have a ton of respect for Derek White and what he could do as a perimeter defender. And uh, he's one of the best guard shot blockers in the league. And so many times over the last couple of years when the Boston Celtics offense has broken down in the playoffs, it's been Derek White who's been able to get them flowing again because of his ability to get dribble penetration and hit little pop shots in the lane and stuff like that. And so I think Derek White is a deeply impactful winner. I think he's one of the top 50 players in the NBA. And in this conversation with Jenkins and Jones guys, I was like, I think it might be Derek White. But then all of them were like, no, it's Porzingis. And then I watched the season opener for the Celtics and I'm like, oh yeah, it's definitely Porzingis. Like it's just he his ability to protect the rim and space the floor in their offense um, it just, just impacts winning at an incredibly high level. But then I see a game like last night and I'm like, fuck, Derek White is really good too. <laughs> you know, and like, and the, the moral of the story here is like, if I don't know which one of those two guys is better and it's because both of them are freaking good, that's a really good spot to be in. If we're in like a legitimate argument over who your fourth best player is and the two options are Derek White and Chris Ops Porzingis, you're in damn good shape and the Celtics are in really good shape. Derek White already has four blocks this season. Um, Jalen Brown got going offensively in the fourth quarter. He had 12 points in the fourth, had a pull-up transition three. That was nice. Had a really nice uh, contact left-hand layup on the left side of the rim. And then he hits the dagger on the right side. Again, you're going to see a lot of that this year. Like Tatum was kind of down a little bit this game. Jalen Brown played better, right? Derek White was scoring a lot more. Drew Holiday, not as much, although Drew hit a big pull-up jump shot attacking a closeout in, uh, down the stretch of this game. But that's what it's going to be like. When you have five guys that are like this, any given night, two or three of them are going to be in the high 20s, low 30s for points. And then the other guys are going to be in the teens. And it's going to be different every night. And the, the main thing is, is like that kind of oscillating rhythm is fine during the regular season. But I usually prefer teams that have a more clear hierarchy because they end up being a little bit more consistent in the postseason. So like... I, I'm less worried about it for the other four guys. I just want to see Jason Tatum like consistently in that you know, like 28 to 32 points a night thing to just kind of show that they're clearly leaning on one guy that's kind of the tip of the spear. And Jason Tatum got a little uninvolved in the offense late. He did have some big plays. The, the Celtics were attacking Kyle Lowry a ton on the defensive end late in this game. And Jason Tatum had two nice attacks on Kyle Lowry, a crossover right to left, two-handed dunk down the lane. And then he posted him up on the right block and drew a foul going strong towards the middle. Uh, but he was kind of uninvolved in the offense outside of that. And I just I want to see them lean heavily on Jason Tatum, especially down the stretch of games, because that's what you're going to need from him in the postseason anyway. Um, Jason Tatum has already posted up 11 times this season, including that big late post up against Kyle Lowry that got him to the foul line. He only did so 1.7 times per game last year. So like essentially three times as many post ups so far per game from Jason Tatum. I think that's really encouraging because I think that's going to be a big half court shot creation weapon for Tatum when we get to the postseason. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, 
That grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. We got a great episode coming up. Picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all. But here's a preview of this week's episode. Do you think it's more embarrassing to dye your hair or to have hair plugs? I don't think either are embarrassing if you're not trying to conceal it and act like you didn't. Okay, so you think if you just come out and go, I got hair plugs... Yeah, like check out these hair. Pl- I mean, don't just walk around. Hey, tapping. Hey, hey, stranger. I don't want you thinking this is natural. You know, but I mean, <laughs> do you, you know do that with everyone you meet? Try to act like they. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, like, like John Cena got it. You know, when John Cena came back to wrestling, he had a bald spot, and now he doesn't. Mm-hmm. You think he should be required in all interviews to say, "Look, by the way, I covered up my bald spot." Yeah, I guess it's weird. I mean, you don't wear a sign or like put a sign in your yard, but all right. So, what about toupees? Those are the most obvious. I but let's like. say you're like Bill Self and you can get it to where it looks good. His is magical. I don't even know if his is a toupee. It is. Though. I think he went into the future and had a procedure we haven't even discovered yet. And this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On the heat front, there's still the heat. They can still defend. They can still get you out of rhythm. Again, Tyler Harrow at 28, but like, it, it, like a, his half court shot creation numbers are still below a point per possession. So, like again, it's like Tyler Harrow is going to be an innings eater in the regular season. I just, I don't think he has enough firepower to be your number two. And and I, and I, I again, I've talked about this to death, and I know Heat fans are probably getting sick of it. But eventually, they're going to have to get more firepower in here. We'll talk about that more in a second. Um, Bam looks like he's continuing to prove offensively. He's run 14 post-ups so far this year and scored 15 points out of them, including passes. Five points on five isos, so that's uh, 20 points on uh, on 19 half-court shot creation possessions. That's impressive. They're just still operating at too much of a a talent disadvantage. Tyler Harrell couldn't generate clean looks in the fourth quarter. He was one for six. Bam was one for five in the fourth quarter. That's what you expect from limited offensive players. They're going to have stretches in the ebb and flow of the game where they can score, but when things really get tight late and defenses lock in, it's only the truly elite guys that can score. And the Celtics just threw the kitchen sink at Jimmy to get the ball out of his hands on his drives rotated really well out of that kept getting these guys stuck in static shot creation situations and they couldn't make plays and again like the coaching and the conditioning and the culture and Jimmy Butler can only take you so far against the best teams in the league this team needs another offensive weapon the Celtics held the heat to a 96 offensive rating in the fourth quarter and that was with Tyler Harrow and Kevin Love both hitting basically garbage time threes late in the game and so at the end of the day it's still that specific problem that's going to hold them back. So far through two games, 110 offensive rating, pretty mediocre. 113 defensive rating, just bad, to be honest. And they've been the worst rebounding team in the league through two games. They're getting just 44.5% of available rebounds. 
So again, I'll never count this team out. I, I just I I trust their top tier guys too much. But this is part of the reason why I wanted Dame to be in Miami. I just thought it would be really interesting to to see them kind of be on the same talent level as Boston and Milwaukee. But instead, both of those teams got better, and the Heat seemingly got worse. And and we'll we'll see if they can overcome it at some point during the season. All right, moving on to Oklahoma City and Cleveland. Two more games. So OKC controlled this game for the most part. They had a double-digit lead for most of the second quarter and the beginning of the third. Shea Gilgis-Alexander was torching them. But then Cleveland fought their way back into the game late third, early fourth with some really impressive perimeter defense, something we don't expect from this team. This has been a weak perimeter defense team um, that is excellent in rotation and excellent at the basket protecting the paint, right? And it's a lot of Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland just kind of floating around defensively, not uh, uh, giving up a lot of dribble penetration, but them just having the back-end talent to kind of clean it up, right? And what I really appreciated down the stretch of this game is it was their perimeter defense that got them back into it. And why that's exciting is like when you pair elite perimeter defense with elite rim protection, that's when you reach like a true level of defensive potential that can carry you to a championship in the big picture, right? And it comes down to a couple different things because like Karis LeVert has always been a very good perimeter defender and he gave Shea Gilgis-Alexander all sorts of problems in the second half of this game as he kind of like was... I would say Karis LeVert deserves the the majority of the credit for slowing down um, the Thunder offense in the second half of this game. But... Donovan Mitchell legitimately through two games is playing his ass off on defense. Like he's trying harder on the defensive end than I've ever seen him try. And then Max Struess is just a solid perimeter defender who is also a smart team defender in rotation. Dean Wade was very good defensively down the stretch of this game, containing the ball against Jalen uh, Williams, helping and recovering uh, off the ball. They just as a unit contained the basketball really well. And especially with cutting off the head of the snake the way that Karis LeVert did on Shea Gilgis-Alexander for the most part, they prevented the Thunder from getting those easy driving kick opportunities. Remember, the Thunder are a team that is a ton of aggregate ball handling and shooting. Everybody in that lineup can shoot. Everybody can dribble. And so like, if you let them play driving kick basketball and beat you off the dribble and get the defense into rotation, they're going to pick you apart. But if you can contain them, you know, a, a lot of those guys like... Josh Giddy and, and Jalen Williams at this phase in his career as a young player, Chet Holmgren at this phase in his career as a young player, Lou Dort as a guy who's better attacking closeouts than a set defense, they're not going to beat dudes off the dribble a ton. They need to get that initial advantage, right? And the, the Cavs just basically took that away and shut them down for an extended stretch there in the fourth quarter as they built a 10-point lead. On the other end of the floor, Donovan Mitchell had a really impressive stretch. He had a driving and one over Lou Dort in transition. He had Dean Wade on a back cut. One of the better passes I've seen Donovan Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell make coming along the right wing. He sees Dean Wade and kind of loops the ball out to the side and just hits him in stride to uh, to throw down a dunk on Shea Gilgis-Alexander. He hit a couple of pull-up jumpers too. Cavs are up 100-90. But then the Thunder finally start getting Cleveland into rotation. First play, Karis LeVert gambles for a steal on Shea Gilgis-Alexander in the left corner. Shea kind of like taps it to himself over the top, catches it, gets downhill to the rim, draws a crowd, throws a kickout pass to Lou Dort at the top of the key. Wide open three, knocks it down. It's 100-93. Cavs go get a bucket on the other end. It's 112-93. Dort runs down in transition along the right side and runs a ghost screen with Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Now, again, they were containing the ball. If you think of the key like this, or the, the three-point line like this, they were containing the driving lanes towards the basket, but Lou Dort did something that I thought was really smart. He just went really fast towards the short corner. And on the play, Shea Gilgis-Alexander sets a screen for him, 
both defenders run with Dort, just pitches it back to Shea Gilgis-Alexander for a wide-open three. Those ghost screens are really hard to guard because most often they're going to switch, and it's just really hard for a guy who's running full speed to hand off to someone else who's standing still, but he's standing still and has to guard the player who's running full speed. And so inevitably, it just kind of it's almost like gravity. It just kind of pulls both guys in that direction. That's why ghost screens work so well. And so he pitches it back to Shea Gilgis-Alexander, wide open three, and he knocks it down, 102-96. Very next possession, they come down, they run a, uh, a kind of a, a, a version of Spain pick and roll where uh, Jalen uh, Williams run a, runs a ball screen with Chet, right? But as Chet is rolling, again, in Spain pick and roll, sometimes the shooter will back screen for the roll man so he can go to the basket for a dunk. Sometimes the roll man will down screen for the, uh, for the shooter coming up. In this play, Chet sets the ball screen on Jalen Williams, turns and, and on his roll to the basket, sets a pin down for Isaiah Joe. Isaiah Joe curls the pin down because he's a shooter. Defenders in trail position, he gets downhill. It's a pitch back to a wide open Jalen Williams at the top of the key. He knocks down a three. Now it's uh, 102 at ni- uh, 102 to 99. Uh, then Lou Dort takes over as one of the best. Uh, oh, I missed one. So then on the very next possession, uh, uh, Max Struess cuts down the lane and throws a wild layup up and falls into camera row. And like I always say, when you when you miss layups and you try to draw fouls, it's it's kind of a poor st- strategy for your transition defense because. If you're probably not going to get the call because refs are trying to to limit the flopping and all that stuff anyway, and the risk reward factor is kind of shitty because if you don't get the call, it's going to be a fast break the other way because you're going to lose floor balance because you have a defender laying on the ground um, in camera row. So Struess is laying on the ground. Thunder run the other way five on four in the uh, transition defense. Remember, you always go to the basket first and then you flare out to shooters. Chet Holmgren ends up trailing the play wide open and he knocks down the three. Now it's 102-102, and we're tied. Um, and again, like what's crazy about that sequence is that's back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back threes for the Thunder, but all four of them were from different players off of different action. And what's interesting about that is it wasn't just one guy got hot. This is just the level of skill that this team has, and they're capable when they run action well and they can get the defense into rotation. They're capable of generating high-quality shots for guys that are going to make it. Like in that lineup, it's Isaiah Joe. He's going to make shots. Shea Gilgis Alexander, he's going to make shots. Jalen Williams, if you leave him open, he's going to make shots. Chet Holmgren is shooting 71% from three so far <laughs> this season. Like these guys are going to make shots. And they have the ability to generate them as long as they can get the defense into rotation. So it's 102-102, and then Lou Dort takes over the game as one of the best perimeter defenders in the world. This is something I've said that made me so excited about this Thunder team. The idea of pairing Lou Dort, who I believe is a top-tier perimeter defender, and Chet Holmgren, who had seven blocks in the game yesterday. When you combine those two pieces, specifically Lou Dort and his ability to navigate screens, Lou Dort is... is Damn near impossible to screen. When you combine that with real rim protection, you can you can cause real problems for the best offenses in the league. And so uh, Lou Dort takes the uh, the game over with back to back defensive possessions on Donovan Mitchell. First one's in pick and roll on the ball screen. Lou Dort just refuses to be screened. And this is Donovan Mitchell, one of the best athletes in the league. He's trying to get downhill. Lou Dort cuts him off, gets over the top of the screen, and beats him downhill. So as a result, Jalen Williams and everyone's able to stay home on their shooters. 
Donovan Mitchell finds himself in trouble because he's going down hill and pick and roll. He doesn't have a shot and he doesn't have a pass. So he ends up just jumping and just throwing the ball away. Turns it over. They go down the other end and uh, Shea Gilders Alexander and Isaiah Joe run a ghost screen, a pick and pop action. And on the action, Shea Gilders Alexander draws two, pitches it back to Isaiah Joe. Isaiah Joe skips it over to the left wing to Lou Dort. Uh, Dean Wade's kind of caught in no man's land between the shooter in the corner and uh, and, Lou, and Lou Dort. I think it was Jay Williams, uh, Jalen Williams in the corner. He's kind of splitting the difference. Max Struess, it kind of doesn't understand uh, whether or not Dean Wade's going to the corner or to the wing. Lou Dort sees the opportunity. He drives the closeout, gets inside, makes a layup to put him up 114 to 112. And then the next possession, Donovan Mitchell says, screw it, I'm not going to take a ball screen. I'm just going to try to shoot over to Lou Dort. And Lou Dort's one of the best individual defenders in the world. He slides his feet and forces Donovan Mitchell into an air ball, and Oklahoma City wins the game. So again, super high-level offensive talent on display, an incredible perimeter defense on display from OKC as they come back to win the game. And again, you're adding real rim protection with Chet Holmgren. He had a huge block late in the game on Evan Mobley when it was 102-96 that directly led to the Jalen Williams three to get it back to three. And, and you've got this outstanding perimeter defender that can't be screened, and you're seeing the elite uh, defensive potential. The Thunder have a 102.5 defensive rating so far through two games, which is outstanding. Chet Holmgren averaging 3.5 blocks per game and shooting 71% from three. That, that I said uh, before he, uh, uh, I said when he came into the league, that I viewed him as essentially like the ideal modern center, the guy who could legitimately be your defensive anchor, while simultaneously giving you true five out spacing and opening up driving lanes, and and he's doing that. And in the big picture, he's going to be an excellent wing scorer as well. It, it's not showing too much of it. He's done some of it, but um, I think his first NBA basket was like a, a half spin back fadeaway over his left shoulder. Like he's got really high level wing scoring potential and well and as well in the big picture. And that might be something they lean more on in the big picture when he gets older. I can't possibly conceptualize a better fit with this OKC core than Chet. On the Cavs front, it's tough to take too much away from these two games because both of them have been so so freaking wild. Like the Nets game, they were down big and had no business winning and then they stole it. And then in this game, they were up big and then they blew it. So hard to make heads or tails out of that. The perimeter defense, though, is exciting. Again, like Lavert's always been pretty good there. But if Donovan Mitchell has his best perimeter defense season as a pro and you add Max Struess into that equation, he didn't shoot well today, but he was still was a positive and a bunch, it made a lot of winning plays. And then if Dean Wade is going to be able to play like that, especially with his length, like you can have some, you can have some exciting defensive potential with this team as well. And when you combine that with the return of Jared Allen with real rim protection right next to Evan Mobley, that they could be even more imposing defensively than they were last year. My biggest gripe right now with the Cavs is offensively they're a little too reliant on Donovan Mitchell, and when he's not hitting shots, they're struggling to score right now. And like that's kind of what these games have looked like. It's like Donovan hits a couple shots in a row, makes a couple plays in a row, and the Cavs go on a big run, and then he goes ice cold and misses a couple in a row or throws a couple bad passes in a row, and then they immediately start to hemorrhage the lead. All right, let's hit our last game and then get out of here for the day. And then we're going to hit our mailbag questions and then we'll get out of here. So the Nets in the Mavs. So the Nets lose another heartbreaker. If you guys remember, they were up six late against the Cavs and they blew that one. This one, they were up five late and they blew this one. Cam Thomas and Royce O'Neal go crazy in the fourth quarter. But then Luka hits back to back to back to back threes to steal the game. Last one's literally a prayer where they get him to give up the ball twice. But he just throws up this like right-handed push shot from 27 feet on the right wing that banks in 
And then Cam Thomas, once again, gets a decent look at the end of the game, but can't make it. And the Mavericks are now 2-0. and um, Down big late, though, offense wasn't the issue. The Mavs scored 37 points in the fourth quarter. As good as Luka was down the stretch, Kyrie was every bit as good to start the fourth quarter. The Mavs scored 20 points in the first six minutes of the fourth quarter with Kyrie basically creating every basket. He's got great pick-and-roll chemistry with Dwight Powell. Already hit him for a couple uh, of layups. Powell also hit a three in the corner off of a driving kick from... um, from Kyrie to cap that run off. But again, like that's the crazy thing with this team is like you, your reward for surviving the Luka minutes is here comes Kyrie and he's going to be almost every bit as impactful. And then if you survive those minutes, here comes Luka again. Right. And like, so far through two games, they've been impossible to guard in every configuration. 121 offensive rating so far for the season. 121 offensive rating with Kyrie on the floor and Luka off. 125 offensive rating with Luka on and Kyrie off. And with both on the floor, a 118 offensive rating. So there's no point in the game where they're going to experience offensive lulls. Now the question is, are they going to be able to get enough stops, right? And on the defensive end, it was mostly just sloppiness. Like they straight up lost Royce O'Neal way too many times in that fourth quarter. The first one was strong side help from uh, from Grant Williams. Like literally, uh, I think it was, um, I can't remember who it was that was driving downhill. I think it was Spencer Dinwiddie. But like they just left Royce O'Neal in the strong side corner, which you don't want to do, right? You want to force the defense to make a skip pass across the court if they're going to give up an open three, right? Um, that gets him going. The second one, in transition, they just don't guard him. Like, Tim Hardaway Jr., I believe, was supposed to be guarding him, but he's, like, facing completely away from him elsewhere on the floor, and Royce O'Neal's just standing by himself on the right wing. They throw, they pitch it ahead to him. He knocks down the three. And then on the last one, Josh Green, again, now, again, like, you got to think of it like this. Nail help is an important part of NBA defense, but it's all relative to what your situation is, right? Royce O'Neal just made two threes. And Josh Green was like sinking way down to the nail in help. And so when they threw that swing pass to Royce O'Neal, Josh Green had to close out hard. And so Royce just threw a pump fake at him and ended, and ended up sidestepping into another three, right? Like Cam Thomas made some tough shots. And your defense is going to have to withstand tough shots, right? Like I talked about earlier in the show, all these teams have offensive ratings over 100. Like, no one's just not scoring the basketball. It's not like you can literally shut a team down. Guys are going to score. But you have to find ways to close down other opportunities. You can't give them the easy ones that come over the course of the game. If Cam Thomas makes the tough shots, but you don't leave Royce O'Neal open, then you don't need Luca to make a prayer at the end of the game to win the game, right? So, like, those are those are the areas that they've got to improve. Now, a positive sign... They've rebounded pretty well. Remember, that was a huge problem for the team down the stretch last year. They've grabbed 49% of available rebounds through two games. That's pretty good. And again, they're 2-0. I know the Nets and Spurs aren't playoff teams in the in the purest concept of that, right? But wins are not easy to come by in the NBA. And so, like in my opinion, you can't hope to be in a better position than where they're at right now. And again, like I do think that defensively they have the personnel to be better than they actually are. And a lot of it is just little tiny execution things that they can improve over time. And the offensive shot creation piece is legitimately a weapon. Like, I mean, we've talked a lot about the Suns potentially being the best offense in the league, and they very well may, may end up uh, uh, being so. But like Dallas is every much every bit as much potential to be the best offense in the league. That's just when you've got that type of top tier shot creation relentlessly coming at you all game with good spacing concepts and with players at the end. Uh, at the end of those plays that can finish those plays, you're going to score a lot of points. 
On the Nets front, uh, Cam Thomas follows up his 36-point night against the Cavs with another 30 in this game. He had 12 in the fourth quarter and hit a game-tying jump shot, like a really uh, a really nice step-back jump shot through his legs against Josh Green on the right wing to tie the game uh, with about a minute left. Cam Thomas is now 9 for 19 on pull-up jump shots this season, 4 for 6 on floaters. His shot making is real. We've just seen too many examples of it so far through the last two years. And again, the biggest indicator is that his teammates trust him at the end of these games. This is back-to-back games now that down the stretch, uh, whether it's Spencer Dinwiddie or Mikhail Bridges, they're looking at Cam Thomas and being like, you do it. And and I think that's a huge indicator of where um, where he's at right now as an offensive shot creator. The, the Nets just have to figure out how to get stops in crunch time. They've had big leads down the stretch in both of these games, but they have a 123 defensive rating in the clutch so far this year. So you've played well enough to be 2-0, and and instead you're 0-2. And, and that's the primary reason, and that's what they're going to have to clean up. All right, let's get on to the mailbag. So, um, first mailbag question. Is there one singular skill possessed by a player that you think is better than the rest? Maybe like Steph's three-point shooting, Giannis's rim pressure, or Jokic's court vision. I think it's easily Steph's shooting. He was the only player in the league last year to hit over 60% in effective field goal percentage on pull-up jump shots, and he was the only uh, 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 the only other guy in the league to attempt at least 11 threes per game last year. So there's two in the entire league, Steph and Damian Lillard, and Dame shot 5% worse than him. So like... It's Steph, and then it's a huge gap, and then it's everyone else. I think his shooting is the is the best individual skill relative to the field in the league. Next mailbag question. I'm a 28-year-old and casual hooper. Unfortunately, my squad continues to separate across the country as work, spouses, and life happens. Pulling up to LA Fitness slash elsewhere for runs with randoms is a nightmare. Old heads who can't run, cherry picking, ISO step back threes, etc. How do you suggest building a new squad to keep love for the game going? So I, I put this mailback question in here because I the I felt this one. I felt this one. I know I know exactly what you mean. Uh, pickup hoop sucks. It just does. It's always going to be an inconsistent experience, even when you play in areas that are talented, because um, talent doesn't necessarily equate to guys who know how to play the game, and so. Here's what I would do if I were you. Because, like, I know when I go play pickup basketball, because I live in Tucson. Tucson's a big town. Like, we have over a million people here. It's like 1.2 in the metro area or something like that. But Tucson's not a big basketball town. Like, there's uh, players like me that take the game very seriously. They're few and far between in this city. Whereas, like, when I lived in Charlotte, for every guy like me, there was 25 others that that took the game super seriously. And then another 50 that were at a level just below that. Or it, like, the, like there's just a ton of players that that give a shit about basketball, that 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 live and breathe that shit when you live in, in Charlotte. And that's just not what it was here in Tucson, right? Now, as far as uh, uh, confronting that the quality of play, just embrace the fact that when you go play a pickup, it's going to be a crapshoot. Some days you'll go and it'll be great. And some days you'll go and it, it'll it'll be a shit show, right? But that's just, it is what it is at this point, right? Find a good men's league and find seven or eight guys that you know how to play with and play with those same guys every single time you play uh, in your men's league. You'll build chemistry with those guys and that'll become the part that you look forward to. Like I have a men's league here in town, uh, a men's league team that I play, in, uh, play with and it's all guys who used to play in college and they all take it very seriously. We have a ton of continuity We've won the, the 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 league three of the last four times, and so regardless of how shitty my pickup basketball experience can be on a day to day basis, I know I can go up there on Sunday and have fun playing with guys who know how to play. And then the other thing I'd say is coach. Find a, get into coaching. Coaching is a great way to recapture some of the joy from competent basketball when you were younger. 
within the uh, concept of something that you can actually do at an older age because in general older age basketball is going to be is going to be messy right because we all have stuff going on we're all busy we all have other responsibilities it's tough to get the same groups to the gym every single day it, it's just it's just difficult to coordinate right but when you're coaching a high school basketball team the same kids are going to be there every day and you can kind of scratch that competitive itch through the coaching um, uh, side of things that you do through the playing side of things all right last mailbag question for whom would you trade D'Lo and Rui? I love Luca, but that's unlikely. It sounds like you're describing Zach Levine, but I'd rather have Trey Young because he'd set up AD better and they'd still have the length to make up for his size and defensive shortcomings. So I hate all of those options. Not a huge fan of Zach Levine. Uh, Luca obviously is impossible. Trey Young is long shot, but I wouldn't, don't think he really fixes m- many of the Lakers' problems. The deal that my favorite deal that involves Rui and D'Lo is you wait till January fifteenth. You call it the Chicago Bulls and you offer uh, Rui and D'Lo, and I don't know. Maybe you can get it done for a second round pick. Maybe, maybe you have to throw in a first, but you get uh, Demar Derozan and Alex Caruso. Salaries almost match up. Uh, you might have to throw in one other smaller contract to make it work. But you bring back DeMar DeRozan, who helps with your half-court shot creation. Uh, he's a great passer and a good over-the-top shot maker, something the Lakers struggle with, right? And then Alex Crusoe gives you that like dominant um, uh, a perimeter defender. And like you like because of Alex Crusoe playing bigger than he actually is, and his way his ability to defend on the um, uh, defend on the perimeter, navigate screens. We literally just saw last night Alex Crusoe flat out steal a game with defensive playmaking and a huge corner three um, uh, as the Bulls came back from down big to win a game. So like like I I kind of envision a scenario there where now you have Crusoe Reeves DeRozan with LeBron and AD and just a ton of offensive skill good perimeter defense. The only thing that would concern me there a little bit is like the wing rebounding thing, but Alex Caruso is really good at that, and LeBron and AD can make up for a lot of that. And then you still have your forwards coming off the bench, and you kind of can configure it in different ways. So that would be my dream D'Lo Rui trade would be for Alex Caruso and Zach Levine. All right, guys, that's all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate you for supporting the show, and I will see you guys on Monday. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 